You know, as I look backwards uh, upon my life, one of the uh, sweet uh, seasons that God gave to me was about a six-month time frame uh, of the time in which Christy and I were engaged. Uh, I proposed to her on February the 25th of 2004 on a Wednesday night in front of about 150 teenagers. I taught uh, from John and how Jesus washed feet, and I brought Christy up on stage, and I washed her feet, and I pulled the ring out, and I said, Jesus is number one in your life, and I'd like to be number two. This is a sweet moment, and it's nice having the pressure of 150 teenagers to make her to say yes. Really, really grateful for that. But thankfully, over the next six months, we had a time of, of joyful anticipation, of dreaming dreams, looking towards the future. Just a really sweet time. And even as a pastor in which I get to walk through that with young couples who are preparing to get married, I get to see this anticipation and this joy and this longing for what is to come into a near future. It's really fun and sweet to experience. That must be what Joseph experienced. He's betrothed to Mary. They're looking towards the future. They're dreaming dreams, looking forward to what is to come. And then it was discovered that Mary was pregnant and Joseph knew he wasn't the father. It's a very difficult moment in his life. The future looked dark. His hope turned to sadness. His joy turned to discouragement. And it's this man whom God raised up to become the husband of Mary and the earthly father of Jesus, the Son of God, that I want to address and focus your attention towards this morning. And we see him on full display in Matthew chapter 1. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. We as a faith family are going through a sermon series called Holy Family in which we are looking at the family that makes up the Christmas story. We're looking at who these people are, what they did, and what it means for us today. Last week, we traced uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, looking at the scandalous family lineage of Jesus, going from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, down through David and Solomon, the kings of Judah, leading forth all the way to Joseph, the husband of Mary who gave birth to Jesus. Matthew's genealogy, it shows that Jesus had the legal right to rule Israel since he was a descendant of David through Joseph. You see, legally, Jesus was Joseph's son. We then see a pivot after the genealogy of Jesus, after verse 17, into the birth story of Jesus. And this is where we pick up in Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. And the scripture says this. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. 
and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. In his infinite wisdom, God ordained for a blue-collar carpenter to be the earthly father of Jesus, the Son of God. Joseph would raise, lead, teach, provide, and protect the weak and vulnerable sovereign of the cosmos. Today, we're going to sketch a portrait. We're going to look at a vignette of a man who raised Jesus. Who is this man? And why did God choose him to be the earthly father of Jesus? I want you to notice in the text the character and the calling of Joseph and what it means for us today. The first thing I want you to see in the text is that I want you to see Joseph, the godly man. Joseph, the godly man. Now, Matthew, the author of this gospel, certainly had heard many stories from Jesus about his upbringing. As one who spent more than three years following around with the 12 disciples, as one of the 12 disciples, Matthew had heard uh, at campfires in Galilee or in huddles on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, he, he would hear Jesus explain what his upbringing was like. He would hear stories of, of how the Old Testament and significance was pointing forward to his arrival. He probably heard stories about Joseph, the man who raised Jesus. Matthew describes him in verse 19 as a righteous man. He's a man of integrity. This is a man of character. He was a godly man. We see Joseph's uh, character on display in how he deals with the news about his wife's, excuse me, his betrothed wife's pregnancy, which we're going to unpack here in just a moment. But God chose this man to be the dad to God's one and only son. Joseph bore the responsibility of raising God's son. Can you imagine that responsibility? Can you imagine God tapping you on the shoulder and giving you the task of raising Jesus, the son of God? What we see in the character of this man is that he gladly assumed this responsibility. This is a man who stepped up to make sure he could lead, provide, protect Jesus. That he would be the father who would lead and love and shepherd this young savior of the world. Oh, that God would raise up more men like Joseph. Men who will love their wives. Men who will raise their children. Men who will step in and lead and love and shepherd a future generation. That God would make us as men godly men, men of integrity, men of character, men who walk in wisdom and desire to shepherd and lead the way that God chose and used this man to love and lead this young Christ child. Now make no mistake, you will not become the father of the Savior of the world. It's happened once, won't happen again. And at the same time, we can look at the life, the leadership of Joseph and may God indeed raise up more men who are just like him. Men who will love and lead and take responsibility just as he does here with the Christ child. But you know what I find interesting? Have you ever noticed in Christmas plays that Joseph never has any lines? In fact, the sheep usually have more lines than he does. 
Do you know why that is? It's because nowhere in Scripture does Joseph say anything. It's as if God says, I don't want you to focus on the words of this man. I want you to see his character. I want you to see his life. I want you to see the integrity of this man who bears the responsibility of raising the Christ child, the earthly father who will love and care and lead for this child. It's as if God is saying, I don't want you to look at what he has to say. I want you to see who he is. Now, a passage of scripture that kind of reminds me of Joseph is 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should bind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Here is a man who, we don't hear him say any words, but we see a man who's working with his hands. He works hard. He leads, loves, provides for his family, and he steps in and lives a life that honors God. It honors the Lord. It's amazing to think about this man, a man who probably had calloused hands from his carpentry, probably had dark, leathery skin from spending so much time outside. He had a, yet he had a tender heart, a love for the Lord, and obey, obeying his commands. Notice even here in the text, God gives a command and he obeys. Look at verse 20. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Verse 24, Joseph woke up. He did as the Lord's angel commanded him. You fast forward to chapter two, verse 13. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. Now put your finger on verse 14. So he got up took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. You go to chapter two, verse 19. An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph saying, get up, verse 21. So he got up. He took the child and his mother and he entered the land of Israel. Joseph was obedient to the commands of God. When God commanded him to do something, he did it. This is what godly men do. They obey the commands of God. Let me say it this way. Faithfulness demands Obeying God's word, no matter the cost or consequences. Let me say it again. Faithfulness demands obeying God's word, no matter the cost or consequences. God commanded, Joseph obeyed. It's like the Christian life. God commands, we obey. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Because when you have the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you, the commands of God are no longer a burden. They're a delight. They're a joy. They're sweeter than honey on your lips. It's something that you delight in doing. You love honoring the Lord. You want to do it. If for whatever reason you feel like God's commands are a burden, check your heart. Either you don't know Jesus or you have a wrong view of God's word and what role the Holy Spirit plays in your life. You see, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, he changes the commands of God from being a burden and a drudgery, a religious have-to-do duty list to, man, it's something I want to do. I mean, my heart has been changed. Christ has changed my life. I'm a different person because of Jesus. You see, the Christian life is really simple, but it's not easy. It's so simple, a young child can understand it, but it's not easy to do. It requires Denying yourself, 
It requires saying no to your flesh. It requires going against the grain of the culture. It means saying no to the ways of the world. It's saying, Jesus, I'm going to put you as first place in my heart and life. You're more important than my marriage. You're more important than my family. You're more important than my house and my stuff. You're more important than my money or my future. You're more important than my, even my own very life. He's a disciple of Jesus. We say, Lord, I obey your commands. They're sweet and they're good because I want you more than I want anything else in this world. Here is Joseph. He hears the commands of God and he obeys. What a picture of God's call upon your life and my life is that as we read his word, we see what he's laid out for us in the scriptures. We hear his word and we go and do what he says. Oh, this Christmas, don't skip over the godly, earthly father of Jesus, a man named Joseph. So we see Joseph, the godly man. The second thing I want us to see is Joseph, the faithful husband. Joseph, the faithful husband. Joseph was put in a precarious situation, to put it lightly. Verse 18 has those three English words. It was discovered. The woman Joseph is betrothed to is pregnant and he knows he's not the father. Can you imagine Mary trying to explain to her betrothed husband that she's pregnant, but she hasn't cheated on Joseph? You see, betrothal is a significant relationship status in Jewish culture. Betrothal was a formal contract between a man and a woman that often originated well before they were of age to marry. Now, this betrothal process is a little bit uh, foreign to us in our culture. So let me kind of lay it out for you. I'll put it in your notes into three steps from marriage, I'm sorry, from betrothal to the marriage uh, process. This is what it looks like. Step one is the arrangement. The arrangement. Typically, the boy's parents select a girl around the age of 12 or 13 for him to marry. The two families then work out the details of a future wedding. The, the wedding would not take place until around age 15 or age 18 at the highest, but that's typically how it would go. The parents would arrange the marriage. Step two was the preparation. Betrothal required formal arrangements where the man had legal rights over the woman. Though they were not officially married yet, this was a testing period of about 12 months as the couple made preparations for the future life that they're going to have together. Now, step two is where Mary and Joseph are in Matthew chapter one. This is where they are. The couple would use terms such as husband and wife, and they would refer to each other like that which we see here in Matthew 1, verse 19. But this is what we also see is that even though they're in this stage, though they are betrothed, they're not officially married yet, which leads to number step three. Step three is the ceremony. The formal wedding ceremony would occur when the couple would establish their home, and it's then at the ceremony that they would be considered legally married. Now, sex between betrothed partners in step two was forbidden. It was considered adultery. The penalty was stoning to death. See, betrothal was so formal and so binding that to break the agreement required a divorce certificate as if the couple was, in fact, married. 
Legally, Joseph and Mary are husband and wife in Matthew chapter one, even though the ceremony has not taken place yet. And now, for all he knows, his soon-to-be wife has committed adultery. His betrothed wife has cheated on him. She has now brought shame and scorn and whispers behind his back. According to Deuteronomy 22, he has the right to stone Mary to death for her presumed adultery. But Joseph shows her mercy. He did not want to disgrace Mary, let alone see her die. So he protects her from public shaming. He protects her from public stoning. And he seeks to divorce her quietly. He's still trying to protect her. See, this is a mark of maturity, especially in men, is that you protect those who are weaker than you at great personal sacrifice. You see, mature men protect the weak at the cost of great personal sacrifice. Maturity means I'm gonna step in and I'm gonna take the, the shame, the scorn, the beating, the difficulty, so that those under my care Wife, children, grandchildren. I'm going to step in and take the hard part so that they can receive the blessing. Here is Joseph. He has been scorned, shamed. His betrothed wife is pregnant. He knows he's not the father. But instead of getting angry, instead of stoning her to death, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to divorce her secretly. He's protecting her. He's protecting her family. He's being honorable. He's seeking to be a mature man who wants to honor the Lord and show mercy in a situation in which he has been wronged. You see, he had every right to defend his honor. He had every right to scorn this woman who has now betrayed him, but he doesn't. He puts her needs before himself. You see, in a shame and honor culture, people would know that when Mary was pregnant and the baby comes forth, they can do the math that nine months hasn't gone by. So in the minds of community, either Joseph and Mary had sex before marriage or she was unfaithful to him. In that society, they're going to experience shame, social exclusion, rejection. You see, Joseph was bearing the shame of sins that he did not commit. Who does that sound like? Joseph is a forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is foreshadowing what his son would do on the cross. What Joseph was modeling in part, his son would do in full at the cross. You see, Jesus at the cross paid for sins he did not commit. He who was perfect and righteous, just in all of his ways, the one who never sinned, the perfect, blameless, the unblemished lamb of God, he takes away the sins of the world, that he takes the shame, he takes the sin upon himself. Joseph is modeling what his son would fulfill through his son's death on the cross. What a picture of the gospel. A man who is modeling what it looks like. A mature man who steps in and takes the rejection, the scorn, and the shame of others so that it might lead to blessing to those underneath his care. That Jesus would experience the rejection and bear the shame of sins that he didn't commit. That his blood was shed for the sins of his parents, but of the whole world. 
Isaiah 53.3, describing Jesus, says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And because, hear me on this, because Jesus bore your shame at the cross, you can bear the shame that comes with being a follower of Jesus. Because Christ took your shame, he has now liberated you to be unashamed of him, right? You know, it's amazing to think about this guy, Joseph. When Caesar Augustus ordered a census to be taken, Joseph had to make the 80-mile trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem with a pregnant wife, crossing mountains and valleys, leading, protecting, shepherding, transporting her in the midst of dangerous animals, bandits, pickpockets. He's a leader. He took care of his pregnant wife. He was a godly man. He was a faithful husband. Joseph married that virgin girl and he took responsibility for that baby who was not biologically his. And yet he took the responsibility upon himself. The third thing I want you to see about this man is I want you to see Joseph, the adoptive father. Sure enough, everything the angel said was true. For everything happening to Joseph and Mary was fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah 7, 14 declares the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. We see it there in verse 23. The virgin birth means that not even a drop of Joseph's DNA could be found on the wood of Calvary's cross. Joseph is now the adoptive father of Jesus. And even though Joseph is not Jesus' biological father, he is still the real father. God called him to be the father to a little boy who needed an earthly father who would love him and teach him and encourage him and pray for him and protect him and provide for him. Here's what's amazing. The God of love was loved by Joseph. The defender of Israel was defended by Joseph. The provider for God's people was provided for by Joseph. The first person Jesus uttered the word Abba was to Joseph. In fact, keep your finger in Matthew 1. Would you backpedal with me real quick to Deuteronomy chapter 6? Deuteronomy chapter 6. Keep your finger in Matthew 1. We'll come back. Deuteronomy 6, fifth book of the Old Testament, fifth book of the Bible. The book of Deuteronomy is Moses' sermon before he dies, the whole book. Deuteronomy means second law. So he's going over the law a second time. He says, don't forget this. In Deuteronomy 6, we see the Shema. The Shema is a prayer that Orthodox faithful Jews would pray at least twice a day. We see the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Look at this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Verse 6. These words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. 
Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. The Shema was a reminder to parents to teach your children the Bible. Teach, instruct, repeat, remind. Don't forget to place this book in their hearts when you're driving on the road, when you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, when you're sitting at the kitchen table. You're continually teaching. You're teaching. You're teaching. One of the roles of a parent is to teach. One of the roles of Joseph was to teach Jesus. Say it like this. Joseph taught the word of God the word of God. When Jesus was quoting scripture in the wilderness to Satan in Matthew chapter four, he's quoting passages of scripture that he learned from his father Joseph or he learned in the synagogue standing next to his father Joseph. Joseph would teach Jesus the Bible at his woodworking table as they built furniture for the community. You see, it would be Joseph who protected Jesus when Herod was breathing out his murderous threats and sends the sword into Bethlehem to slaughter the baby boys. It was Joseph who carried the gold, frankincense, and myrrh with them into Egypt to provide for his family as they are now refugees and immigrants in Egypt. It would be Joseph who relocated his family to Nazareth once he was given the all clear that Herod was dead. It was Joseph who taught his son woodworking a material that Jesus would become very well acquainted with throughout his life, where he would ultimately be sacrificed upon a wooden cross. It was Joseph who taught his son obedience. For it would be Jesus' perfect obedience to his parents that was essential to his perfect law-keeping on our behalf. You see, Joseph bore the responsibility of raising the Son of God. The king of kings built castles with blocks on Joseph's workshop floor. Talk about the influence of a man. And it would be Joseph who would bear the responsibility of not only raising and shepherding Jesus, but also his siblings. Now, the Catholic Church falsely teaches that Jesus never had any siblings. It's not true. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Galatians all make reference to Jesus' half-siblings. I put them in your notes. But you see, Jesus' siblings, they didn't believe in him at first that he was the Messiah. And John chapter 7, verse 5 says, For not even his brothers believed in him. For whatever reason, Jesus' brothers didn't believe that he was the Messiah. They weren't believers. Their hearts were not open to their perfect half-brother being the hope of Israel. And maybe this Christmas, you're going to be sitting at the kitchen table with friends or family, grandchildren and children who don't know Jesus yet. May I say to you, Joseph knows what that's like. Joseph knows what it is to have people at his table who don't believe upon Jesus as the Messiah. All this Christmas that you would take time to pray Say, Lord, open their hearts to the gospel. Lord, help them to believe. Would you take this Christmas to be hospitable and be loving and kind and to open wide your doors and your crockpots as ways to share Christ with friends and family and coworkers and children and grandchildren that they might hear and see the gospel? Maybe this Christmas you 
walk through an open door of testifying to God's grace upon your life. Maybe around a Christmas tree, your family says, hey, before we open presents or before we do uh, whatever tradition we're going to do, we're going to tell testimonies and stories of how God has been faithful to us. Parents, what an opportunity you have is to tell your children about what your life was like before you knew Christ, how you met Christ, and what your life is like now, now that you know Christ. Where you go around the room and you testify to God's faithfulness in your life. Maybe you're the only believer in your family. Use that as an opportunity to say, hey guys, before we move forward, I want to share with you something that's really important to me. He's the most important thing to me. If you can give me five minutes, I want to tell you the story of what God has done in my life. Joseph looks across his kitchen table and he has children who don't know Jesus who's sitting right there next to them. But you know what's interesting? At some point, something clicked. Acts chapter one, verse 14. Right after Jesus ascended up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God the Father, the disciples are praying, and what does the scripture say? Who was there? Mary and Jesus' brothers. In fact, at some point, they came to believe that their brother really was the Messiah. James, Jesus' half-brother, would become the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He would suffer a martyr's death. He would also write the New Testament book called James. Jesus' half-brother, Jude, would come to faith in Christ. And he would write the second-to-last book of your Bible, the book of Jude. You see, at some point, they came to faith in Christ. And I think about Joseph in Matthew chapter one. And here is a man where it felt like his life was falling apart. His hope of a wonderful marriage to Mary looks bleak. She's pregnant. He knows he's not the father. All of his dreams of what would become of his marriage feel like they're falling apart. And yet we see the grand scope of God in which God was up to something bigger than Joseph could see. So what did Joseph do in the midst of hardship and difficulty? He trusted and obeyed the Lord. That's your impact point. This is what I'm calling our church to, is this, trust and obey the Lord and let him guide your life. Trust and obey the Lord and let him guide your life. Maybe you're thinking, man, my life is not turning out the way that I planned. Maybe you're here today and you're struggling. Thinking, I don't know how financially we're going to make ends meet. Maybe you've gotten some bad news from the doctor. You're experiencing relational brokenness. You're walking through what feels like the valley of the shadow of death. And you're just like, I don't know if I can go forward. Kenneth, what do I do? Trust and obey the Lord. As Joseph was probably left spinning, wondering, what is going on? This girl, Mary, we were going to get married and have a wonderful life together. He trusted the Lord. He obeyed the Lord. And God was up to something bigger than he can see. And so this Christmas, trust and obey the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Joseph.